Our reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, extending to the end of the chapter, verse 26. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now Adam knew his knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he sandaled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. 
And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before your presence now having heard your word read and with anticipation of what it is that you will say to us, how it is that you would speak to us. We need to hear in this passage both the warnings that you offer to us and also the gracious invitation that you extend to us. Help us to hear the cry of the blood of Abel. And help us to hear yet the greater cry of the blood of Jesus Christ. And help us to know that in the cry of the blood of Christ, all is made right. Come now and make us right through the work and the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Cain and Abel is a story with a long history. Many poets, writers, and songs have been written over the years inspired by the unfolding of the verses that we just read here in Genesis chapter 4. Lord Byron, many years ago, wrote a poem an epic poem on the story of Genesis chapter 4 and Cain and Abel. In that story, exploring and in that poem, considering the nature and the depravity of man. John Milton, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, takes a snippet from Genesis chapter 4 and explores in horrific detail the nature of the killing which we see in this passage, the first murder of Cain against Abel, giving to us graphic portrayals of not just the depravity but also the extent of man's violence. It's no wonder then that John Steinbeck great American writer, took this story, Genesis chapter 4, to write his magnum opus as he reflected on whether or not evil could be overcome in his work, East of Eden. Decided to title this sermon, The East of Eden, because I think that was Steinbeck's point, is to say, even so far removed from Genesis chapter 4, we in modern day America still live in the midst of the violence of the East of Eden. This is a bloody passage. One that begins with the blood of birth one that ensues with the bloodshed of a brother, one that unfolds in a bloody lineage of Cain, and one that points us to a new and better blood, 
the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all shedding of blood is equal in what it speaks and says. We must listen to the pages of Scripture to understand the nature of the cry of blood that comes out from this passage and to trace, as it were, its bloodshed to where God tells us the bloodshed ends. So I want to start, as we look at this passage together under point one, with these two brothers. I'm going to call them blood brothers, Cain and Abel. It's really remarkable the way that this text begins. If you can just get your, your feet for a minute in the, the, the epic nature of this history. Eve is the very first woman in all of human history to carry a child. The first woman, if we can put it as such as this, to experience morning sickness. The first woman to ever have those odd food cravings. Pickles and ice cream together at the same time. The, the first woman to ever feel a child kick inside her womb. How magical it must have been for Eve in that moment to both receive the knowledge of that conception and to walk through the reality of this pregnancy, the very first one ever known. At the same time, as many women in this room can testify both the magic and also the fear that goes along with that first pregnancy. Consider the fact that Eve had no mother to guide her, no one to lean on for any knowledge about what was normal and what was not normal. No one handed to her a copy of what to expect when you are expecting. No one gave her a prescription for premarital pre. Natal, <laughs> vitamins. No one gave to her an ultrasound. No birthing classes did Adam and Eve go to together to prepare for the moment of the birth of Cain. Did she even know how long a pregnancy would last? We don't know what it is that Eve knew. The text is remarkably silent upon all of these fascinating things that our minds wonder on. But what we do know is that when Cain appears, she is filled with wonder and excitement. She says in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man, a male child, with the help of the Lord. Uh, Eve's comment is a reflection both on her and on the mercy and the grace and the provision of God. Uh, first of all, it's the astonishment, as we learned last week, that Eve was given a unique name by Adam. She was no longer called woman at the end of, of chapter 3, but in, instead having heard the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Adam dubs the woman Eve, which means life giver. Here is Eve at the very first 
moment of recounting of her vocation coming into the fulfillment of the name that she has just been given, the life giver. But she recognizes simultaneously that this life that comes from her is not of her. It's not something that she can take credit for. It has been given to her. She has received this child with the help of the Lord. Now, we would have to suppose it would be the only way to understand contextually the way Moses is writing to us the unfolding of the story in the book of Genesis that in the back of Eve's mind when she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, that she has the promise of the Lord ringing in her head from Genesis 3.15. She has been told that the seed of the woman is is going to crush the head of the serpent. She is the woman. This child is the seed that has come forth from her. It would make absolute sense that Eve in this moment understands that not only has God provided a child, but that God has provided a fulfillment to the promise that there would be a seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. What that means is that Cain is not merely the excitement of a firstborn, but that Cain is the fulfillment of a prophetic promise in the eyes of Adam and Eve. As she nursed, as she cradled Cain in her arms, she might have simultaneously looked at him as her deliverer. Not unlike... The expectations, if we trace it forward to the beginning of the book of Luke, when Mary cradled Jesus in her arms and nursed him at her breast, would have looked upon his face, having heard from the words of the angel that this is the Redeemer, the one in whom she gave birth to would be the one who would give rebirth to her. It's only reasonable to suppose that this would have been rattling around in Eve's heart. She has gotten a male child, but no, not just any male child. She has gotten the seed of the promised serpent crusher with the help of the Lord. Now, the expectation here is high with regards to Cain, and you can see that the text focuses entirely upon Cain, especially when you look at how routine the retelling of Abel's birth is. Look at verse 2. And again, she, Eve, bore his brother Abel. That's it. For all you secondborns out there, that's all you get. Right? All those years of resentment that you've held for the fact that Your older brother or sister has a complete scrapbook and baby book done with every first that ever happened, and you barely have record of your existence. Such is the case on the opening pages of Genesis chapter 4. Oh yeah, and by the way, there was a second-born son, and his name was Abel. Interestingly, it doesn't refer to him as a son. Notice the way it refers to him. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. You see the expectation of the text? We're not even referring to him as the son of Adam and Eve. We're referring to him as the brother of Cain. My sister used to say, she's two years younger than me, when she would walk into a community that I had been a part of for a period of time and she would introduce herself that 
She hated to hear, oh, you must be Nate's sister. She didn't like being known by her older brother. She wanted to be known on her own right. Well, here in the testimony of Genesis chapter 4, Abel is only known in reference to the firstborn son, Cain. She bore Abel, and he was Cain's brother. The fact of the matter is the text is unfolding for us this focus upon Cain because it wants to show us that the anticipation that he would be the seed is right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4, that at a fever pitch, redemption is underway. But human expectations don't often align with God's sovereign plan, do they? We like to forecast about the future of what will happen to this child and what will happen in this moment as we take these steps. Here's what will unfold. God is full of surprises. And his plan never quite turns out the way we thought. The prophets tell us that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are are higher than our thoughts. His plans are greater than anything that we conceive. We have a penchant to want to know the future ahead of time. God calls us to rest in the present and let the future take care of itself in the unfolding of God's inscrutable plan. We see here that no matter what expectation about the height of Cain sits at the opening of Genesis chapter 4, we can see that he is not the sovereign redeemer, the one who has come to rescue the people of God. From their sins. That said, Cain is given the privilege, as you can see in the text, of following the footsteps of his father. We're told that he's a gardener, he's a farmer, he is a man of the land, just like Adam had been called by God to be the tender of the Garden of, uh, of, of, of Eden. And in that, we see what the Old Testament speaks of as the law of primogeniture. The law of the firstborn son carrying on the legacy vocationally of his father. The the one of the firstborn son receiving the inheritance of the family name. Cain, in a very real sense, already foreshadowed the one who is walking in the footsteps of the father. But notice it's Abel who is described here as a sheep herder. A new profession, no doubt. A profession now greatly needed after the fall. It used to be that lion and lamb lay down together in the Garden of Eden. That didn't happen anymore east of Eden, post the fall. Now the sheep have to be protected. They have to be cared for. They have to be walked with. They have to be shown, as it were, the green grass and the still waters. But the Scripture is teaching us something even deeper than the fact that Abel's call arises in and around the recognition now that the animal kingdom doesn't get along and can be harvested for clothes, sheep. That's also a fairly new invention by Genesis 4. But also food, meat, which we'll see throughout the the unfolding of the book of Genesis, becomes important as sacrifices are given unto the Lord. But even deeper... By telling us that Abel is a sheep herder, in knowing the unfolding of the Bible, it hints at the importance of his character. Because if you look throughout the pages of the Old Testament into the New Testament, isn't it always the sheep herders that the Lord determines to use? Those smelly, marginalized, 
grungy sheep herders, those are the ones who throughout church history, throughout biblical history, are given a place of prominence despite the fact that they're marginalized by society. Think of Moses. Moses, after he's in exile, leaving from, from Egypt, he is in fact writing these very words to the people of Israel in Genesis. It's he that's in Midian, keeping Jethro's flocks on the, on the mount of God, Mount Horeb, and on the side of that hill as he keeps sheep, what does he say? A burning bush. The presence of the Lord who calls Moses into being a deliverer of God's people from keeping sheep to keeping God's people. Wasn't it David? 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel crying over the spilt milk of Saul. God says, no, don't cry anymore. Go to Jesse. Jesse's got all these sons. I've got Jesse's sons. Going to line them up for you. I've chosen one of them to be the king of Israel. All of the sons are paraded before Samuel. One by one, they're excluded except for the one who's not present. Samuel asks, is this all of your sons? Jesse goes, well, no, there is one, the, the run of the litter, but he's out keeping sheep. Go get him. His name is David, the greatest ruler in Israel's history. It would be God who over the course of the pages of the Old Testament would identify himself as the shepherd of his people. Most famously in that Psalm of David, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Do you see these notes of vocation, these emphases in the text, small as they may seem, we read through them quickly. We move on to the, to the blood and guts of this passage. But before we get there, God is giving us so many indications on the surface of the text that he is about to do something very surprising, that the firstborn is going to serve in a very real sense over time the secondborn a theme that plays out in this book of Genesis. As we see the, the Isaac and Ishmael, the Jacob and Esau, as we see the many stories that unfold through the book of Genesis, in some ways we see the same kind of tension unfolded right here at the beginning with Cain and Abel. In fact, I would argue that the whole book of Genesis is the unfolding of these two seeds of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. We see them in this passage, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We see them with Isaac and Ishmael. We see them with Jacob and, and Isaac. We see them with Abraham and the Ur of the Chaldees. We see them with Joseph and his many brothers, don't we? Don't we see the unfolding of this history of two seeds, two lines running parallel throughout human history, one at war with God, one submitting to God? One in faith trusting the Lord and obeying. One in rebellion rejecting the Lord and giving themselves over to sin. Already we see in the opening pages of Genesis chapter 4 in these verses that God, well God is like he was when he elected David to be king. He didn't look on the outward appearance, but that he looked on the heart. He looked on the heart. 
That plays out here in this story. You see in the offerings that are offered here, we're told that Cain brought fruit of his labors, the fruit of the ground, and we're told that Abel brought the fruit of his labors, a firstborn of his flock and his fat portions. And then we read, verses 4 and 5, that the Lord had regard, notice, he accepted, that is, Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He had no regard. Now, scholars have puzzled over the years, why is it that God had regard for Cain's offering, but he didn't have regard for, or for Abel's offering, but he didn't have regard for Cain's offering? Why, why was that the case? M- many have suggested that it's a type of offerings that are given here in this passage. Uh, the fruit, the crops, the grain that, that Cain offered as an offering to the Lord was a bloodless sacrifice. Whereas that God required a bloody sacrifice which Abel offered in the sacrifice of the sheep. We're told in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there is warrant in thinking that maybe it's the type of sacrifices that's the problem in this passage. And it's why Abel's sacrifice was received and Cain's was not. But let's be clear, we're in Genesis 4. This story is still unfolding. At this point in time, we actually have no clear instruction in the Word of God regarding sacrifices. If we put this passage in the context of its time, we know that there's a sense in which the rhythm of their life is one of sacrifice. Some guidance has been given, but we don't know what kind. This is before Leviticus. And when we look at Leviticus and the other passages that teach us about sacrifice, we begin to learn that grain offerings or crop offerings are accepted. Look at Leviticus chapter 2 in your spare time this afternoon and you'll see the grain offering and how it coincides with this bloody offering. Not meant to be at war with each other, but different. Different purposes, different intentions. Others have looked at this rejection and this acceptance and have suggested that it wasn't the type of offering, but it was the quality of the offering. We're told here that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, and he brought his fat portions. That is that Abel brought the very best he had. He looked over his flock and he said, what is the very best that I could bring to the Lord? And he chose it out and he gave it to the Lord. Notice Cain's offering. He gave from the fruit of the ground. It's very nondescript. It's very underwhelming. We get no indication that he went out and he picked the ripest tomato or the healthiest of grain, whatever it was that he was bringing before the Lord. There's no sense of that in the text. But we have to also remember, just because it's not there in the text doesn't mean that's true. That's an argument from silence. We have to presume or assume that that must have been the case. Could it have been quality of sacrifice? Could it have been the type of sacrifice? Of course it could be, but I think there's a deeper deeper meaning that gets to the heart of this. Even if those two factors are in play, the reason for God's rejection of Cain rather than Abel is because of a third factor that I think we see hinted at if we look at verses 4 and 5 closely together. Look at how it's written. And the Lord had regard, notice, for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no Regard. Now, what's the point? 
Well, I want you to see it's not written this way. He had regard for Abel's offering, but he didn't have regard for Cain's offering. No, no, no. He starts with the person. He had regard for Abel as a person and his offering. And he had no regard for Cain as his person, nor did he have regard for his offering. It seems as if the text is indicating for us in its separation of the person from their work that there's something not simply in the quality of the offering or the type of offering, but in the heart of the one who offers it, of the one who is actually doing the offering. Now, why would I say that? Well, only because the scripture from cover to cover tells us that the purpose of our worship in covering to the Lord, the purpose of our offerings today, we are offering sacrifices of praise. We're singing and we're praying and we're listening to God's word. We are in a very real sense offering up ourselves, as Romans tells us to do, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. The scripture tells us that it's not the perfection of your singing or the, the depth and the eloquence of your prayer or the earnestness at every level, the perfections of who it is that you are, the drumming up of your performance, but instead, it's the faith-filled love of the transformation that's happened in your heart towards God. That God is looking at the heart when man looks at the outward appearance. When God looks at Cain, he sees a heart that is faithless and is turned away from him. And like Israel of old, he says, I do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Lord, I know it's not just the formality, the perfunctory fulfillment of a duty that you're after. But here's what God delights in. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, that you will not despise. Lest you think I'm making too much of it. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 4, because it actually tells us as an interpretation on Genesis 4, the real heart of the matter. Hebrews eleven four 4 says, by faith, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. The writer of Hebrews is telling us, you don't have to guess as to what it is that pleased the Lord in the midst of these offerings. It was the faith of the heart of Abel that led to the regard of God and the faithlessness of the heart of Cain that led to the rejection. Friends, what we begin to see in the text of Scripture and what it is that it's showing us is that the most important thing in our relationship with the Lord is not the perfections of what it is that we do, but it's the gift of faith that God gives that transforms us from the inside out by His grace. Already in, in Genesis chapter 4, The Lord is teaching us not to be consumed with the outward appearance or the perfection of our offerings so much as we are to be concerned with the integrity of our heart in faith with the Lord. Now, in saying that, am I seeking to say that God doesn't care for sacrifices or offerings at all? No. I'm simply saying, 
that the offerings and the sacrifices that are acceptable in his sight come from hearts that have been changed by faith in grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the offerings that are acceptable. And so the purpose of this text is to get underneath the external and to show to us the real heart of who we are as a people. It's asking you the question today, why are you really here? Why are you really here? Is it because you hope to pay back God? You owe something? You sinned yesterday, so it's good to be here today to kind of work that off? To be acceptable in the sight of others simply because you made a commitment? You always honor your promises? Or are you a faith-filled lover of God and you have come here to put yourself on the altar because he is beautiful and believable to you? And you want with the whole of your life to give it over as a living sacrifice to him. That's the heart we're praying for as we come into the presence of the Lord today. That's the heart we're praying for. This acceptance of Abel over Cain leads from blood brothers to what I would like to call bad blood in this text. The end of verse 5, we read in the rejection of Cain's offering. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That language, face fell, is an idiom, a Hebrew idiom that, that, that means that the, the demonstration of Cain's face revealed how angry he was. You ever seen someone really angry, right? Flushed red, the tightening of those eyebrows, squinting of those those eyes. His face went from, from uplift to, to, to downward fallen, probably the sense of both embarrassment and shame at the rejection, and then on the back end, anger. Uh, you, you've probably felt that, that experience of guilt and embarrassment, a face falling because you were not rejected or you were not appreciated in the way that you should, and then you begin to tell yourself a narrative in your head, but I worked so hard, I did so great, people ought to appreciate me more. I should have been accepted. And all of a sudden you move quickly from a sense of guilt and shame to anger. Cain here becomes fighting mad, seething, ready to explode. God sees it. He says to Cain, why is it that you're mad? You have no reason to be mad. There's no reason for you to be mad. That's not the right response in this situation. God, very similarly to what he did with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't come in with accusations. Comes in with questions. Comes in with questions, provoking the heart to reflect, to consider. Why is it that you're angry? You know that if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. If you do what is wrong, though, know this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And it will seek to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Now, as God says that to Cain, he's giving him a warning. He's teaching us something about the nature of sin. He's saying, I want you to know the nature of sin. In those moments where you are embarrassed, you experience guilt, shame, where you know that you have done wrong, you have broken the commandments of the Lord, there is something inside of us when we begin to be exposed that wants to immediately self-defend. In pride, we well up with self-defense. And if we can't give a strong enough explanation that seems plausible and defensive to those in whom we are trying to convince... 
we often well it with anger. We escalate. God is seeing that momentum in the heart of Cain. He's calling out. He says, I want you to know, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. What does he mean by that language? Well, I want you to think of the serpent in the previous passage. It's almost as if he's using him like a lion, like a livestock who's waiting in the wings, crouched down, hidden from sight, but present, ready to pounce. He says, it's at your door. It's close to you. You might even think of it as a snake coiled up in the grass that you cannot see. You think you're okay. And in the moment where you put your guard down, it snaps and it strikes at you. He says, sin is like that. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 7. He says, every time that I go to do something good, I find it a law that sin is right there with me. Amen and amen. Every time we go to do something good, and even when we do something good, we then take pride for the thing that we did good, which was sin, and it crouched at the door and it got us. That's what happens so often. Dude, he's warning him. He said, this is what sin is like. You must always be on your guard. But notice this. The purpose of sin is always to get you, to kill you, to consume you. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. I want you to see that in this, God is giving to Cain grace. He's saying, Cain, there's still time. Sin's right there, but you There's time to turn. You're welling up with defensiveness and with anger, but there's time for you to confess. Turn to me. Instead of holding on to your pride, humble yourself. Confess your sins. Seek forgiveness. Come to faith in me. Remember my promises. I'm a gracious God. I didn't destroy your parents. When the aid of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I let them live. And I promised to them that I would redeem them. This is the spirit of who I am, Cain. Don't hold up inside yourself and self-defend. Come and release it. Be real. Be honest. Come forth. I will redeem you. And Cain chooses to go further down the rabbit hole of sin. We move from blood brothers to bad blood to bloodshed. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Reading that this week, I was just stunned by the fact in verse 7, we're told that sin is at your door. It's crouching to pounce upon you. And then Cain crouches and pounces upon Abel. He, in a sense, inhabits serpent-like activity with horror and simplicity as described here in verse 8. Scary, it's haunting. It's the recognition that Cain is growing in to being the monster that sin makes us. He's going deeper into the depravity and the formation of what happens when we give into the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the boastful pride of life rather than living in accordance to the grace and the commandments of God. Now, if you were reading this story, I don't think you would have said, oh, I saw that coming, the, the, the murder of Abel. That, just, that was coming. Because up to this point, there's been no anger that's in any way expressed in this passage from Cain towards Abel. Where's the anger being descri- des- described? It was Cain towards God. Why is it that he takes it out on, on Abel? In this passage, well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer reflected a little bit on this. He asked the question, did Cain hate evil? Or excuse me, (laughs) did Cain hate Abel? 
And then he answers his own question and says, yes and no. He says, the better way to understand what is happening in this passage is that Cain killed Abel out of hatred for God. Out of hatred for God. Isn't this the slipperiness of the way sin works? If we can't get what we want through the greater power, the acceptance that we're after, we'd prefer not to be around anybody that's accepted. Out of the hatred of the fact that now his his younger brother of all people has been received and accepted from the Lord through his sacrifice while he, the older brother, the promised one, the golden boy of the family, is utterly rejected. He, in this moment, begins to translate his anger and his wrath away from God towards Abel as a means by which to satisfy that which is roiling within him. C.H. Spurgeon says it maybe even more vividly. He kills Abel because he couldn't get his hands on the throat of God. God in this moment arrives on the scene and he does what he's been doing. He asks questions. Where is your brother Abel? Notice his response. I, I don't know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, what deceit. My, how far we've fallen in one chapter. Adam and Eve at least had the wisdom to know that they had done something wrong and could blame shift to somebody else. Not Cain, outright lie. I don't know. In fact, who are you to demand that I be my brother's keeper? What gall to be able to turn the question back on God as if he's suggesting more than he ought with regards to the calling of Cain. But of course, God is not fooled in this passage. We're told that though the body of Abel might be hidden, concealed in the ground, the blood of Abel is crying out to God. Remember how Adam and Eve hid behind the trees, (laughs) hid behind the fig leaves, and none of it worked? Same is happening here for Cain. He had dispensed with the evidence, no doubt, but the evidence had its own way of voicing as a witness against him. In a remarkable way, Cain, a man of the land who had for all of his life produced life from the ground, now has the ground itself witnessing to the death that he has wielded by his own hands. The language of the text is that the ground is a witness on a witness stand and it is testifying against Cain. And what does it cry out for? Well, it cries out for justice. It cries out for justice. And we see God in the midst of this passage begin to levy a curse upon Cain. Cain becomes a fugitive. He becomes a wanderer. No longer will the ground produce for him the fruitfulness that it had produced before. And you might begin to think, wow, the Lord continues to be merciful to Cain. Why doesn't he just get rid of this guy? That Cain retorts back, this punishment is way too much for me. No no repentance, only pity, self-protection. If you put me out there in the world and people know that I've committed this murder against my son Cain, then I, as a fugitive, am likely to be killed by somebody else, which is exactly what he deserved. But it's the thing he's complaining about. And God, still in his kindness, we're told, puts a mark upon Cain. God is continually merciful. 
He says, no, if somebody comes and tries to kill you, I will heap upon them sevenfold the judgment of doing you harm. As I was reading this passage this week, I found myself in my own fleshliness going, why is God being so patient with Cain? Why doesn't he just do away with this guy? I mean, everything that he says is the opposite of the repentance that he should display. And yet we're told in the scriptures that God's patience is that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. We're told in Romans 2, verse 4, that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. When that little judgment rose up in my own heart in reading of the text. I began to think, man, this guy just needs a, a significant uh, attitude correction at least and maybe a disposal himself from the face of the earth. And I begin to think, I'm glad the Lord has not responded that way to me. When in his first overture, I rejected him. And in his second overture, I welled up with more anger. In his third overture, I become more self-defensive. And still he continues to pursue me in his grace. And maybe even this morning, that's true of you in the course of your life. That you have lived in unrepentant sin, maybe even now harboring anger towards God for the way in which your life has worked out. And you're seeing yourself become more and more volatile. You're seeing yourself more and more tempted towards the areas of destruction. You can see and feel the wheels coming off. It's in those moments where God is extending to you and he is saying, I'm not yet allowing the worst to fall upon you because I'm patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13. But we see that in the pages of Cain, this kindness of the Lord is not returned. In the unfolding of this passage, at its very end, we see an unfolding of more blood. This whole genealogy at the end, seven generations of Cain, capsulizing and climaxing in Lamech, this one who sings a song of violence who takes the promise of revenge from God, that he will sevenfold bring revenge. He says Lamech will, will bring 77-fold. It's the escalation of violence. We see this escalation happen through the pages of Scripture, what leads us to the flood coming up in just a few chapters. The Tower of Babel as, as it's erected. The, the continual violence and progression of human history is that we are all in one sense from the lineage of Cain. That the fallenness of human nature is within us. But notice how this text ends. It ends with Seth. It goes back to the very beginning and he says, Listen, I want you to know that the godly seed of Abel was snuffed out, but God provides for himself. Another seed of the woman. His name is Seth. And guess what? Guess who he, he bears? He bears Enosh. You know what that word Enosh means? It means weakness. We've just heard the bravado of the prayer of Lamech. He is strong and he will revenge 70-fold, 70, 77-fold with regards to those who attack him. But notice Enosh comes with weakness. And it's in those moments where people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. It's in the humility. 
when we begin to read through the pages of Scripture, you know what we begin to see? We begin to see that the lineage of Cain disappears from the face of the earth. After this genealogy, we never hear ever again of the lineage of Cain. It's gone from redemptive history. But Seth, all throughout the pages of Scripture. And in Luke chapter 3, we're told that even Jesus, the seed of the, of the woman, the one who will really crush the head of the serpent, comes from the lineage of Seth, this godly seed extending throughout the ages. And it's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 could say, when Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often should we forgive? Seven times? And Jesus, referencing Genesis chapter 4, says, oh no, not just seven times. Seventy-seven times. The fullness of the escalation of vengeance that Lamech was singing about, Jesus turned it into the fullness of the unlimitedness of forgiveness. And he said, I have come and I have brought justice. And because I have brought justice, my blood cries out, mercy. My blood cries out, mercy. The writer of Hebrews tells us that there is a word that Jesus' blood speaks and the word that it speaks is better than the word of Abel. Abel's blood speaks justice, but Jesus' blood speaks grace. And today as we come into the presence of the Lord, isn't it a gift that he has not given you and me what we deserve, but that he has been patient and he has been kind and he has provided for us a redeemer. And by his grace, this day, he extends the same grace to us again. Newness in Christ, the blood that is better than Abel's. Father in heaven, we ask that you'd make that blood more real to us today, more precious to us today than any other blood. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from hungering for the blood of revenge, the blood of retaliation, and that we would, in the blood of Christ, know that all justice has been served and that he is bringing all things to right. And we get the privilege now to hear the cry of Jesus' blood, which is a blood of mercy, a blood of grace. Lord, today as we come to celebrate you, and even in a moment from now, feed upon you by grace, we ask that you would meet us in that spirit. Humble us and free us into the redemption that only comes from you. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.